I love Dr. King so much. Few figures from throughout history have inspired and shaped me more than Dr. King. Of course, I went to Morehouse College where he also attended, but for me, it's deeper than that. So today, on a very special episode that we're calling MLK 360, I want to take my time and play five special audio clips of Dr. King that don't really get much airtime. They don't play these clips on commercials before the Super Bowl. Conservatives and even most liberals, they don't quote these clips. I just want you to have a more three-dimensional, 360-degree view of who Dr. King really was. Happy King Day. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the, the Breakdown. The the, the, the Breakdown. The, 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 The Breakdown. Today on this special episode of MLK 360, I really just want to get out of the way and let you hear some beautiful, powerful, poignant clips from Dr. King. And again, a lot of these are clips that just don't get the airtime they deserve. And I think the first two are going to surprise you, not because they came from Dr. King, but because the speech they came from. It came from the I Have a Dream speech. And, you know, most of us, if we were forced, uh, we could probably quote a few clips from the I Have a Dream speech. Most people know about him saying, you know, one day he's hoping that there'll be a day in this country where little white boys and white girls could hold hands with little black boys and black girls. We know that. Uh, Conservatives, their favorite quote is, don't judge somebody by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And when they say that, they're not talking about black folk. (laughs) They're often trying to weaponize that saying, hey, you are prejudging conservatives in some kind of way. But these next two clips that I'm going to play for you from the I Have a Dream speech just don't get played very much. And the first comes from really the the warm-up section, the introduction where he's ramping up to this crescendo, but he's building, Dr. King is building a philosophical base, not just for the speech, but for the entire march on Washington. I'm going to play you the clip, and then I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about it. All right, here we go. Beautiful, powerful piece. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, 
America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Ah, I love that so much. I love it, yes, because in part it did come in the I Have a Dream speech. But it's actually so powerful. He he starts off the I Have a Dream speech by saying, and he says before that clip that in the founding documents of this country that there are many beautiful statements and many powerful promises. But he goes on to say that the United States of America in so much as the Negro people are concerned, has written this these folk a bad check. And (laughs) when I first thought about talking about that, I realized that many of you who are under 30, you might not even know what a bad check is. (laughs) Uh, A bad, you know, you do know what a check is, right? You have a bank account and there are these rectangular pieces of paper where you can write a check to someone and it's basically saying, hey, this check, I'm putting your name on this check. And when you go to your bank, they'll take money from my bank. Well, if you don't have the money in your bank and somebody goes to cash it, it's marked insufficient funds, meaning that you don't have enough money to cover the check that you wrote. And Dr. King says, listen, this country this country wrote black folk a bad check (laughs) and people loved it. You know, first off, when he gave this speech, there were no debit cards. There were no credit cards. Uh, You paid with stuff either with cash or check. And so checks were the common language of the day. And when Dr. King said the check you all wrote us, yo, that check came back marked insufficient funds. People loved it. But it's powerful because he's building up this idea that like, listen, I have a dream that one day this country will live up to its promises, that one day it will pay its debt, that the checks we cash will actually clear, that they won't be marked insufficient funds, that the promises won't be empty. But at this moment, Dr. King is saying those promises have failed us. Just a powerful moment. Let me play one short clip that never gets played. It's also from the I Have a Dream speech. Here it goes. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Most people have no idea when I play that clip for them or even just show the quote. Most people had no idea that Dr. King even mentioned police brutality. Some people didn't know he ever mentioned it in his life. Of course he did. It was such a problem, even in 1963, that he made it a part of his speech and said, listen, again, that your check is going to come back insufficient funds until this problem of police brutality is addressed. And so, again, that's one of those clips. They don't they don't be playing that clip of Dr. King talking about police brutality. So I just wanted to show you that just to show you that Dr. King has been so reduced 
to a caricature sometimes of himself to little tiny slivers of his most famous speech, but that when you take a step back and even begin looking at that speech, you begin to understand that like, oh, Dr. King was always talking that truth. Now, I want to play a few clips from you that rare is not the right word. It's rare that they ever get played. It's rare that you ever hear them, even on shows about the history of Dr. King, the life and death and struggle of Dr. King. You really hardly even see these clips on social media. And these next few clips came from the last year or so of his life. And I just posted on Instagram earlier today that when Dr. King was assassinated, he was perhaps the least liked public leader in all of America. And 76%, no, let me do the math, 78% of white folk did not approve of him, did not like him publicly, 78% of white folk. But 55% of all African-Americans who were surveyed just the week before he was assassinated, 55% of all African-Americans did not approve of Dr. King. And his methods had changed. He had made a deep philosophical shift and he gave a bold, powerful speech at Riverside Church here in New York, where I am right now, speaking out on the Vietnam War and it's hard for me to explain in words just how revolutionary that was at the time. Like right now, you know, it, it's not so far outside of the mainstream to be anti-war. But when Dr. King came out to speak against the war, other civil rights leaders, particularly black civil rights leaders, they weren't doing that. It was still accepted in the mainstream and it had not made this this anti-war turn had not happened yet. And, and Dr. King was ahead of the curve saying, listen, this war is evil. We shouldn't be in it. It's wrong. And the media began to slam him. Politicians began to distance themselves from him. And in the shadows of that, Dr. King says in one of the upcoming interviews that I'm about to play for you, that he went away to, to write a book. And uh, he says that he went to Jamaica to write it. But he also says that during that time that he was praying, that he was meditating, and he came to think very differently about what had to be next, particularly for African-Americans. And I want to play three powerful clips that give you an idea of where Dr. King was going with his life. You know, just a few minutes ago, I saw a beautiful picture of Cicely Tyson who's 95 years old and still alive, still well. She just did an event with Ava DuVernay. Dr. King was younger than Cicely Tyson. Like, Dr. King could literally still be here with us. Um, our, our hero, Harry Belafonte, who is still living, was older than Dr. King. Dr. King could still be here. Yet we were denied over these past nearly 60 years. We were really denied an opportunity to see what he would have accomplished. And these next three clips that I want to play for you give us a real glimpse into what that would be like. 
I would not say that the civil rights movement is dead. It's simply that we're moving to a new phase of the movement. For well now 12 years, we struggle to end legal segregation and all of the humiliation surrounding legal segregation. So it was a struggle for decency. It was a struggle to get rid of extremist behavior toward Negroes. Now we are in a new phase, and that is a phase where we are seeking genuine equality, where we are dealing with hard economic and social issues. And it means that the job is much more difficult. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income. It's much easier to integrate a bus than it is to get a program that will force the government to put billions of dollars into ending slums. It's a wonderful thing to work and be concerned about integrating public accommodations or integrating the public school, which are schools, which I will continue to work for with uh, vigor and with zeal. But I've also got to be concerned about the survival of a world in which to be integrated. And these issues to me are tied together in that sense. I love that clip so much because Dr. King, you have to understand that clip that I just played was from 1967. That's a full 13 years, 12 and 13 years after Brown versus the Board of Education and the Montgomery bus boycott. And 12 years later, Dr. King can now look back retrospectively and he says, hold on, hold on. The civil rights movement is not dead, but we're in a new phase. They had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And here he is in 1967 and he's saying, listen, no, no, no. The civil rights movement is not dead, but we're moving into a new phase. And he gives us a glimpse of something. And in a moment, I'm going to play a clip where he is now vividly clear on where the country is. But he begins to give us a glimpse into how he saw the previous 12 years. He saw the previous 12 years being about ending the humiliation of segregation, ending the outward abuse of segregation in Jim Crow. But he says now we have to get into the harder work of actually building and bringing equality, which is something that just uh, ending segregated lunch counters or ending segregated buses doesn't necessarily make us equal. It may end the humiliation, but it doesn't make us equal. And this next clip that I want to play, he begins to unpack more of what it is that he thinks he needs to be fighting for. Let me play it for you. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, 
Today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to fall, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. I wish you could see that video because Dr. King is speaking to a basically empty auditorium. He's he's at a church. This is 1968. He was assassinated in April of 1968. So this is just weeks before his assassination. And Dr. King is speaking at a church that is virtually empty. And it's a it's a powerful shift from the I have a dream speech where a million people came from all over the country. He is now speaking to, I, I, if I counted it, it might have been eight or nine people. And they were sparsely sitting throughout the church. It wasn't like he was speaking to eight or nine leaders who were sitting on the front row and it was just private. It looked like it was an event and nobody really showed up. And people are just sitting sparsely throughout a large church. And Dr. King begins to break down what's next. And without using the word reparations, in many ways, what he's talking about here are reparations that are owed to African-Americans that were promised that are owed and that are already given to other people. And not just reparations, but just economic empowerment, loans, interest rates, land. And, you know, I, I cut off the very end of the clip there where Dr. King says in this next phase, he uses the, the, the check as an idea again, kind of echoing the I have a dream speech from five years early. He says in this next phase of the civil rights movement, we're coming to get our check. Just powerful. I have, I think maybe just one more clip that I want to play for you. All right. It's a, it's a powerful interview that he did with NBC News, and he's sitting in the sanctuary alone with uh, an interviewer, and he's at Ebenezer Baptist Church there in Atlanta. His father was this, the lead pastor of the church. He grew up just literally a few blocks away, and he says something critiquing not just the I Have a Dream speech, but critiquing his worldview over the past few years and it's powerful and it's and it's painful let me play it for you i must confess that uh, that dream that i had that day has in many points turned into a nightmare now i'm not one to lose hope i keep on hoping uh, i still have faith in the future but I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments, and I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead, and some of the old optimism was a little superficial, and now it must be tempered with a solid realism. What Dr. King had witnessed just in those few years from 1963 until the moment where he does that interview was a country that, yes, 
moved forward in some ways, but in other ways took painful steps back where we had painful lynchings, assassinations. And Dr. King, while he's doing this interview, says, listen, my my dream has turned into a nightmare. And I, I think one of the more painful parts of that interview is him looking back on his younger self saying, I, I feel like some of the optimism that I had was a little naive and superficial. And I understand what that feels like. Like, we should always want to be optimistic, but at the point in which our optimism blinds us from reality, it is superficial. Uh, I think we should always be able to look forward, and Dr. King was always looking forward. But if we look forward in such a way that we don't see the holes, the barriers, the walls, the laws, the policies, the, the, the enemies, if we look forward in a way that blinds us to the reality, then our optimism is exactly what Dr. King said. It's superficial. And so, I, you know, today on King Day, I just wanted you to hear a 360-degree view of the man where it wasn't all optimism. And those last few clips weren't about pessimism. It's him saying, you know what? There is, there's going to be a lot of really difficult work ahead. And he was right. And what we saw not only was his assassination, but the assassination of Robert Kennedy, who was someone who was also optimistic but realistic, looking forward into America's future. And what came out of all of that after the Civil Rights Act, after the, after the Voting Rights Act, after the assassination of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and other civil rights leaders, what we had were 30-plus years of an explosion of mass incarceration. Dr. King, when he called it a nightmare, when he said, I, I think I was a little superficial, he could not have fully understood exactly what was coming, of course, but in a very prophetic way, he got a glimpse into the future and it concerned him. And I think right now we are still in that future. As I said, when we started, Dr. King could still be here among us. And I wonder if he saw 2020 with its horrific rise in hate crimes and exploding gap in income inequality where poverty is still deep but the rich are getting filthy rich. If he saw what we are right now with a president, Donald Trump, with fascism and, and bigotry becoming the norm, if he saw it, what would he have done? And so, you know, we created this podcast, The Breakdown. We created the company, The North Star, not just to tell the news but we created this podcast, we created the North Star, we created the work that we do to not just change the news, but to change the world. And I just want you to hear from me that no matter how hard, no matter how difficult things get, 
We're going to keep on pushing. I love you all. I appreciate you. Take care, everybody. Break it down. Break, 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 break,